So, this is in many ways the end of the Marquis. If nothing else, it's the end of the Marquis on Deep Space Nine. Which, I mean, we've already covered the end of the Marquis on Voyager, such as it is. And I don't even think we've actually gotten to the Marquis yet on TNG, but i got to ask something. Why is it they could never think of any stories to do with these people in three shows? Oh, don't mistake me, I actually enjoyed several of the Maki stories. That's not what I mean. I mean, the most consistent quote I see from the the writers and producers is that they had no idea what to do with the Maki. They're like, okay, here's the Maki. Uh, um, uh, okay, they all died off camera. Whew. Okay, we're done. Whew. In fact... From what I understand, according to the companion guide to D-Space Nine, the only real reason that they actually did this at all with the Maki here is because they were... Well, let's talk structurally speaking. The next episode is a breather episode, and the episode after that is things getting real, which I'm saying as vaguely as I can, for those of you who haven't watched this show yet. Um, so it makes sense that they wanted to try and conclude something, but... Everyone constantly... I've talked about this before. This comes up in DS9, this comes up in TNG, and it comes up in Voyager. Nobody seemed to have any idea what to do with the Maquis. Why is it so hard to write for these people? I mean, come on. They even had a cool subplot idea. The idea of them trying to found their own nation and being actually recognized as an independent state from the other ones, which would allow them to actually work at a separate level and try to have actual intergalactic, excuse me, interstellar communication, trade, negotiation deals, um, you know protection treaties. There's all sorts of stuff you could do there. And I don't even mean just on the political side of things. Nope. Kill him off camera. Even Cal Hudson was killed off camera. Come on. Now, I know what you're saying. Lore, hang on. What about the Nog subplot? So, what I usually do, especially when we have an A plot and a B plot that have nothing to do with each other, is I'll section off like a portion of my notes, so that this part is for the A-plot and this part is the B-plot. So I, I gave myself four lines to write for the A-plot, and I wrote down nothing. I have nothing to say about the Nog subplot at all. Moving on. <clears throat> so, the Klingons backed the Maquis when they were still fighting the Cardassians. Now that sounds like an interesting story idea. Wish they could have said something about that. But the Klingons provided cloaks to them, Class Four cloaks. I don't know if that means they're particularly crappy or very good. It's one of the two. And one of the big problems that DS9 has always had is that they tend to perceive Maquis people as Federation citizens. Now, whether you care about that or not, it's kind of relevant when you consider that the Dominion just wiped them all out. Not too long before this episode. Cisco flat out mentions getting the reports of them being massacred en masse. Now this does make sense in its own horrible way, because the Cardassians would have said, hey, Dominion, help us with our problems, and those problems were the Klingons and the Maquis. So, you know, that, that, that is logical. Horrible. Terrible. Logical. And the Federation just kind of lets that slide. What I'm trying to say here is I have talked many times about how the Federation has been, um, how do I phrase this, incredibly tolerant of out-out, out-and-out war crimes and straight-up declarations of war in action, if not on paper, by the Dominion, and just kind of letting it slide. But this episode takes that even a further step because now they're terrified of a, of a retaliatory strike against Cardassia, which might force the Dominion into declaring war in a more open manner against the Federation. 
This is not me complaining about bad writing, to be clear. This is me saying that the Federation is constantly bending over backwards to maintain the peace. Even when, and I'm just going to say this as bluntly as I can, it shouldn't. I've said this before and I've said this again. This is past the point of tolerance. This is a very hostile power, which has absolutely no interest in negotiation whatsoever, and has declared its hostility not only in words, but in actions multiple times. Um, yeah, this is... This is a this is a situation in which the Federation should be preparing themselves full tilt for open war, if not total war, with the Dominion. And yet, the fact that they are like, no, wait, peace! This says so much about the Federation's policies and how they approach things. And I believe firmly in the concept of cooperation and coordination in respect and tolerance. The ideas of, we're different, that's cool, we can still work together, we still have common ground, and we could still have, you know, reasonable discourse between us. That's, that's probably one of the biggest tenets I believe in, in general. And that's one of the things Star Trek's really big on, in general. So don't mistake me for saying that I think the, the Federation are a bunch of peace, peace-neeking... I'm trying to blend words here together. Peace-loving beatniks who are just trying to put flowers into guns and that sort of thing. Instead, what I'm trying to say is that the Federation is taking it too far. This goes back to Season 1 of TNG. There's no way this is not deliberate. Remember, as I complained about extensively, in Season 1 of TNG, the Federation's overall diplomatic policy was do whatever the other side says, no matter what. Just bend over backwards and let them walk all over you. Now, I've often said that diplomacy and negotiation is about be being willing to reach further than the other guy, right? But that doesn't mean... It doesn't mean don't take it to an extreme. It doesn't mean take it to an extreme, rather. It doesn't mean literally become a doormat, right? But that's what the Federation is doing to the Dominion. They are a doormat to the Dominion here. And this is a problem because the Dominion isn't the board. They are willing to play at politics. They are willing to take advantage of your doormat tendencies. In fact, to be completely blunt, I am nothing short of astonished at the fact that they have not attempted what they did in that little simulation back in Season 3 or whenever that was. You remember the episode, right? Because that is the kind of thing I can see the Federation going along with. We'll do whatever we have to to maintain the peace. Whatever is necessary. I, I, I hate to say this, but I'm a little surprised the Federation as a whole isn't willing to become a vassal state of the Dominion, just like the Cardassians did, in order to preserve the peace. Now you might say, well, they would never accept that. And on one hand, I would agree, because, well, because the Federation people would never go for that. They simply have too much of an, uh, a cultural, uh, let's call it expectation of things like freedom and self-determination. Than to be willing to accept basically being a servitor race of something like the Dominion. So if the Federation as an organization accepted that, there's no way the Federation as a people would. But I'm getting off topic. I just, I'm, I keep bashing this point because Cisco's point over and over and over is about how this must stop a war. We must prevent a war from happening. Ben... You are way too late. So anyways, 
there's this nice bit where Eddington basically plays the fool. What he does is he confirms suspicions that Cisco has speculated on by feeding him the information. It's actually a form of cold reading, effectively. And he feeds him the right information by selectively denying it. Not that there are any missiles. There's nothing there. I don't know what you're talking about. Besides, you'd need the launch codes to launch them. Or to cancel the launch, rather. And thus, in so doing, he effectively slides a lie into his uh, denial, thus manipulating Cisco. He actually does it surprisingly well throughout the episode. It's it's some nice stuff. It's probably my favorite overall character bits for Eddington. Is he is constantly manipulating Cisco. I'll talk more about editing Eddington in specific later. I want to take a quick aside because there's this bit where we cut to Quark, who is talking about Morn and the incoming Dominion invasion, which is totally coming. I mean, there's no way it's not. Now, one of the things that I praise often in television is when they do, I don't have a proper term for this, not filler. Filler is exactly what it sounds like. It's like, all right, we need to f fill out the episode, so we're going to have a dumb scene that has nothing to do with anything and makes the episode worse. Uh, the boxing episode over on Voyager is probably the best example that I could think of, because that episode actually did have the potential to be a good episode, and the filler scenes completely destroy that. So that's filler. Bad. Padding. I talk about this constantly when it comes to discussing movies, shows, and game design. But not filler is when you need to stretch out a runtime so you put something meaningful in there. Something that actually has some substance to it. And I bother to point this out when it happens because each time I consider it to be a good thing and I, I really I think this should be the norm and it isn't. The scene with Quark and Bashir and Odo and Kira talking about Morn, that's not filler. That's good stuff. That's helping to give a, a grounds view, you know, ground level perspective and viewpoint of the normal people while the situation is getting escalated and getting worse. It gives us a little bit of world building because we get to know how uh, things are developing in the background, you know, a little bit of character moments. It's good, in other words. And even though it pads out the episode's runtime, it gives us something other than the main plot to focus on. This is, in my opinion, and I know I've said this before, one of the things Deep Space Nine does best and better than any of the other Star Treks. It has those little moments of background world building. If it wasn't for that, honestly, I don't think DS9 would be as well revered as it is. My opinion. Moving on. Eddington talks about food and the difference between replicated food and home-cooked food. Now, I've actually seen people say that this is definitive proof that homemade food tastes different than uh, replicated food. I don't buy that. I want you to think, if you will, just do me a favor. I want you to think about a restaurant that you really like. Not a fast food place, not a fast food joint. Like an actual restaurant where they have a kitchen and they have cooks and, you know, they go and they cook the food special for you, okay? A good restaurant. Doesn't have, it could be a chain, that's fine, as long as it's good. Now, I want you to imagine a dish that you like there, and I want you to imagine that you spent the time growing the vegetables, you know, selecting the meat, butchering it yourself. Basically, you put all the time and effort into making that dish yourself. Now, is it going to taste different than the restaurant dish? Absolutely, of course it is. There's many different things that are going to make that taste different, but is it going to taste better? Now, I would argue stridently that the answer is no. You may prefer it, because variance of taste and preference is a thing, but it's not going to be inherently superior to the food that that restaurant cooked, just because you put all that time and work and effort into making it yourself. 
This is, in summary, my, my opinion on the replicated versus real food argument. That some people prefer real food over replicated food for the same reason people prefer anything over anything else, just preference, because they like it more. Or maybe there's a, and this is actually something I strongly suspect, there's kind of a, I, I don't want to say placebo effect, but you know, there's basically a mental preference for something that, even though it doesn't actually taste different, makes them enjoy it more. I, uh, I say recently, as of the point this video is going live, I've been doing this for about a year now, but for the past year or so, I've been cooking my own food, now that I have access to my own kitchen, and pushing out those Lord Durr's videos. And I do have to admit, there is a greater satisfaction from enjoying a meal that I made, and I try to make it from as scratch as I can. Obviously, I can't go all the way back down. I have limited time in my life, but you, you get my point. So from that perspective, I understand completely. You grew your own tomatoes, even, and even though it rained too, too much or it didn't rain enough, and then you made the meal and it tasted wonderful because you made it. That makes perfect sense to me. But I stridently disagree with the idea that replicated food inherently tastes worse than normal food. I do, forgive me for talking about this so much, but this is part of that world-building thing I talked about. Star Trek basically never discusses the replicated versus homegrown food thing, like ever, except on D-Space Nine, and it keeps coming up here, and it's a fascinating topic to me. I, I, I could seriously sit here and just talk about replication as a food production method for hours because of how many, much there is to discuss here. So I'm going to go ahead and chop myself off before I do that, but... I just, I forgive me for gushing about it. Like, if nothing else, imagine for a moment that, okay, I don't want to replicate this dish. I want to replicate some tomatoes and some basil and, let's see, I'm going to need some ground beef, 90% lean, and I'm going to go ahead and need uh, some peppers, jalapeno peppers, and a little bit of olive oil, and just replicating all the, I'll, I'll skip over, replicating all these ingredients. And then you make your own spaghetti, basically. Or you could say, computer, make me spiced spaghetti. Now in that case as well, I think the difference in flavor between the two would be present, because one of those is basically always going to taste exactly the same, because it's a pre-baked meal. The other one is always going to taste a little bit different from making to making because of all the little nuances and dif differences in how you cook the ingredients. But the ingredients are still provided by the replicator, right? I mean, just, like I said, there's a lot to talk about here. <clears throat> but I bring it up because one of the things that the writers talked about, uh, especially um, Harris Stephen Bear, as he mentioned, he had no idea what to think of Eddington. Like, they had no idea what to do with this guy, no, no handle on him, no, no perspective. And the more that I look into this show, the more I tend to agree that the writers had no idea what they were doing with this character. If I were to speculate, I would say that at least one of each of the writers in the writer's room basically put a little bit of a hand on Eddington in this episode. Because we see five or six perspectives on him which don't necessarily cohese with each other, but don't actually disagree with each other either. Just pure speculation here. But I think this is their last effort at being like, oh, we got to do something with this guy before we kill him off. <laughs> so, getting back to the episode proper, we find out Cal Hudson's dead, and then Cisco and Eddington both really lay into each other verbally. What I like is that both do have a point. Eddington points out that Cisco and the Federation really pushed the 
the Maquis harder than they should have, or far less harder than they should, depending on how you think of it. Whereas Sisko points out that Eddington's constant push for a military victory as opposed to a negotiated peace was, in their case, probably the wrong move. Put bluntly, if not for the intervention of the Klingons, the Maquis would have gone very, very badly. And, well, as Sisko points out, what the Maquis did was they pushed the Cardassians to the point of desperation. Now, they weren't the only factor doing that, but that is definitely one of the big factors that helped push the Cardassian government in general into sidling up as a new vassal state under the Dominion. So then Sisko calls his bluff, says, look, no, I'm going to go get a rock to Gino. Eddington's like, what are you doing? You're insane. They're about to be here. Well, I'm just having a cup of coffee. What I like about this is Eddington has been playing Cisco from the start. But this is Cisco's. Cisco's not dumb. He is aware to some extent that Eddington is playing him. And he uses this as a way to call that out. Now, he isn't aware that the whole thing is a lie yet. But he has successfully deduced part of what's going on and so pushes Eddington to try and save them, which Eddington then does. This brings me to a question. Do you think Eddington was serious about killing Sisko? He says that, I think, three times this episode? Something like that? Now, if you want my opinion, I'd say no. Well, he is someone who obviously has a lot of things to be angry at Sisko about. I don't think he would ever get to the point of murder. I just don't. Ignoring the fact that Eddington is a big romantic who is really big on lost causes and, you know, being the good guy. There's also the fact that I just don't think it is in his character to be that kind of a person. Because that wouldn't be killing at that point, which a soldier could do. That would be murdering. And there is a distinction. I think he was just doing that as a way to basically vent. Oh, I'll kill you. I'll rip you apart. Terry has it. How many times have you or someone you know said something like that and not meant it at all? It's a way of venting. That is just my opinion, though. And as I said, there's a lot of different perspectives on Eddington. And as usual, I would love to hear your guys' thoughts on Eddington as we go through this. I don't have much to say about the rest of the episode, which is why I paused here to talk about Eddington so much. Because we see the barrels, which, um, for some reason, are resistant to Dominion weapons. He even mentions the material. These barrels and their material will never be mentioned again. So maybe if they kept the Maquis and the Federation, they would have won the war. Uh, we see that there's Jeffrey Tubes even on a runabout, because of course there are. Uh, we see a lot of dead people. One of the original story ideas was to leave all of the Maquis dead, that the Maquis would die, be completely wiped out. This was vetoed because they wanted the possibility of using the Maquis over in Voyager if they wanted to, which well, we saw how that went. And I have an interesting thought. If Eddington had been honest with Sisko from the beginning, would they have helped? Either the Federation as an organization or Sisko as a captain, would they have reached out and said, yes, we will help evacuate your survivors? I'd like to say yes, because I'd like to think the Federation are, for all their many flaws, still overall good guys. But it's an interesting thought, and you could see why the Maquis wouldn't even try to ask whereas they would instead subvert and coerce in order to be like, no, no, we're totally going to launch these missiles, guys. No. It's just interesting to think about, and as ever, curious of your thoughts on that. So Eddington dies, and that's the end of his character. 
and Cisco himself can't even get a handle on it, which is apparently some writer speaking through the character kind of a situation. And thus the Maquis end. I'm really not sure what I think about that. Uh, don't mistake me. I think the Dominion is a far more interesting uh, storytelling device. But at the same time, I don't know, I feel like there's a lot more that could have been done with the Maquis going forward. Even from this point onwards. But they're not going to do that. Feels like a bit of a shame. I don't have anything else to add. I hope you've enjoyed the end of the Maquis. I'll see you next time.